Hey, this is Jim Roos, the co-publisher of The Financial Brand and owner and CEO of The Digital Bank Report. Today, I'm at the Financial Brand Forum at Las Vegas, and I'm joined by Rohit Bhargava, the professor of global marketing at Georgetown University. Jim Roos from The Digital Bank Report again uh, at the Financial Brand Forum, interviewing another one of our keynote speakers at the Financial Brand Forum, Rohit Bhargava from Georgetown University, and uh, great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's a fun event. It's a lot of marketers in one location. So at Georgetown University, you do a lot of research and, and work on, on how marketing can be built around it in a digital environment. But more importantly, we have found that in marketing overall and digital is really you have to change your mindset. You have to let go of everything you've learned in the past. What is, as you look at the outside world, what do you see as being the biggest challenge for organizations really embracing not just new technology, but new contact vehicles, new ways that people want to absorb content, things of that nature. Yeah, well, I think you, you said it in, um, in the idea of not just technology, because I think a lot of times when we talk about innovation or when we talk about digital, people think, oh, it's all about the technology. Innovation is not defined by technology. Innovation is defined by doing something new and different that works. And I think the challenge is that there's a lot of what I call innovation envy which is we look at companies like Google or we look at other companies that have ping pong tables and we think, oh, if we just slapped in some ping pong tables and had a hackathon, we would be innovative. And of course, that doesn't work. And so I think the challenge is figuring out what purposeful innovation means and where do we need to change the way that we think. And realistically, what that means is what do we need to stop doing? What are we doing right now that's the old way that doesn't work anymore that we have to rethink? And that's the biggest challenge, right? To say, what are we going to stop doing? And when we talk to people about innovation, when I do you know, work for some of these big companies and we define innovation and we talk about that, they're not thinking, we got to stop doing this stuff. They're thinking, what do we add to it, right? What do right. we layer on top right. in order to be more innovative? Do we create an innovation lab over here? Do we create some sort of like digital kind uh, of think lipstick, tank? Kind of lipstick on the pig, where you go, yeah. okay, you still got the pig, and you try to make it better. And it's not, that's yeah. not the way you do it, yeah. Yeah, or you just kind of assume that you always have to have a pig in the first place. Yeah, right? exactly. And I think that that is the biggest thing that needs to be rethought. And from a leadership perspective, it's tough because when you get to a leadership role, you've been in the organization for long enough that you know what's worked and you have a point of view and you're being paid. Well, by the way, you've also been successful. You've been successful, right. <laughs> and you're paid for your point of view. Right. You're not paid to listen. You're paid to decide. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're paid to decide, and I've been in both roles, then nobody's paid to listen. And that's the two biggest challenge. And so one of the things I say in my bio, which is sort of a joke and sort of true, is I listen first, then speak. And I think from a leadership mindset, if we adopted that more as leaders, we would come up with more innovation because we wouldn't assume that we always have the answer. Which is tough because as a leader sometimes, you feel like your role is to be the smartest one in the room. Yeah. And sometimes you have to take that subservient role, let others be the leaders, and learn from them. And, and it's interesting, it's, it's, a, it's a great sales technique. I'm a salesman by trade and, and realize that a lot of times, while I may have had the answer or thought I did, it was better to leave it an open forum and not speak that out because sometimes people step back and go, okay, he's already figured it out or he thinks he has and that's not my turn to, to speak. And that's a challenge because again, as you said, your leaders have, have gotten to the position they are by being successful, having good thought patterns, but sometimes having a person above, above them that gave them the opportunity to have that 
is how do you take that and, and apply that the other way? That's right. And I think that a lot of times what ends up happening is we feel this pressure to know every solution. And I deal with a lot of really senior level people who will bring in an outside person because they can't ask anybody on their team, right? Because they're supposed to know. And that sort of pressure that we put on our leaders to say, you should know everything about everything is unrealistic, but we, we do put it on there. And so the only way to get around that is to find <coughs> places where you can authentically ask the questions you need to ask without feeling like an idiot. And how do you, because that takes a mindset change too, to even open yourself up to outside influences that aren't going to be biased by what you wanted to hear in the first place. I mean, we make fun of the consultants yeah. a lot of times that all they do is put on paper what you wanted them to put on paper. How does a person or how often do you see genuine longtime leaders truly take the step to say, I'm going to let go of this rope and grab out the next one, not knowing if I'm going to hit ground? Not often. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough. And I think part of the reason it's tough is you're right. There's a lot of biased advice, right? And when you bring in a consultant, they're going to consult and tell you that what you should do is the solution that they have, which is why I see a lot of senior level people turning to folks who are more positioning themselves like coaches versus consultants, right? Yeah. So the coaches say, look, I'll help you decide what to do and help you get smart about this, but I don't do any of this stuff. I don't have a consulting but firm. I can I open your do, mind. But I can open your mind. <clears throat> I can make you, you know, go through these thought patterns. And, and that's why I think that's been so popular these days to have really successful senior level people bring in someone who's a coach or a peer to help them decide who they should be paying attention to. I mean, that's a great point because that allows them to do it the way they wanted to, but in a, from a different per angle or perspective. And it's, and it's changing behaviors. I mean, I, yep. I'm, in a, I'm in a personal wellness journey right now where I'm changing a lot of different things, but you find that the old ways of just trying to find the quick fix, whatever it may be, is not nearly as beneficial as changing the triggers, changing the behaviors, changing the way you looked at things yeah. in such a way. And, it, and it, I think it's the biggest stumbling block we have in the financial services industry because we're, we're legacy risk averse. Yeah. We're built from a hierarchy where it says you're going to move up based on your tenure and your successes. So you almost are building in the successes are good. And even our regulators are, are the worst of the worst or the best of the best from the standpoint of they're the longest term bankers with the most legacy thought patterns. So mm -hmm. what we have is a consumer that's moving very quickly in a digital world, a financial institution that's trying to catch up, and regulators in many cases don't have a clue about what the newness may be. And, and we had a conversation with a person from Kodak yesterday, and you run into the challenge that says, you know, change happened at Kodak over about a decade period. We could wake up tomorrow and have the whole banking industry turned upside down because of a change. I mean, it, yeah. We're all positioned that way that Amazon Bank or yeah, and we Amazon Plus like, Chase, yeah. And we do end up, a lot of times, I think, leading with fear that way. Saying, yeah. like, oh, somebody's going to come along and they're going to invent something right. and all of a sudden it's going to be like, we're, we're out of business, we're, we're screwed. And I don't, I don't think that's the right way to position like change and, and, and disruption because leading from fear causes you to just do what somebody else does. First of all, if you're going to do something innovative, the first question can't be, show me a case study. Because if it's innovative, there's no case study. That's the point, right? So we can't immediately say, well, make it, let's separate the idea that someone's done this before from the idea of, is this risky, right? Because a lot of times what happens is we look at these innovative ideas and we think, oh, that's so risky. And the risk is that it fails. The risk isn't public scrutiny because nobody cares, nobody's paying attention to it, right? So the challenge, I think, a lot of times and the way I frame it for uh, a lot of the executives that I'm talking to about this is how do, you, how do you fail quietly? Do it that way. 
right? So how do you innovate in a way that if it fails, nobody even heard about it? Because that's the best way to fail, right? right. You'd much rather right. trip when nobody else is looking. Right. And so that you can actually plan for. And that does not mean, I don't think, lack of accountability. It just means being able to do it in a, a safe, safe zone. Yeah, in a safe zone. And I think the other thing is um, this challenge of being more open-minded and seeing things from outside of a particular industry. So a big part of what I, what I teach is the process of thinking outside of your industry. And one of my favorite ways to do that, really practical ways to do that, is every time when I'm traveling, and I travel a lot, like I'm sure you do, every time I'm traveling, when I go through an airport, I pick up a magazine that's not targeted to me. So I'll buy Teen Vogue magazine, which is for 16-year-old girls. I'll buy Modern Farmer magazine, which is for, you know, farmers. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy, you know, Sailing magazine. I've never been sailing. And I'll do that because when I open the magazine, there's a couple of things that happen. First is I get to see the language that they're using for someone who's not like me. I see the ads and who's advertising and what the pitch is to them. But most importantly, I see exactly what they see. Because a lot of people don't realize when you go online, everything's so personalized that when you search on Google for something and I search for the same thing, right. we don't see the same results. Right. And people don't <coughs> and realize it's subtle. That. It's subtle. They've gotten better yeah. and better at it through an right. innovative process that you never even knew happened. Right. And so what happens because of that is I see filtered results. I see filtered news. I see things that agree with what I think. You see things that agree with what you think. And now when we start talking to each other, we immediately assume that each other are stupid yeah. because you're reading different things and I'm reading different things. And in a magazine, that's impossible. Because when you pick up Teen Vogue and when I pick up Teen Vogue and when the 16-year-old girl picks up Teen Vogue, it's all the same. And we need to intentionally choose to do that because the algorithms won't do it for us. Well, it's interesting because it, it gets to the personalization aspect of everything and saying, how do we connect on a personal basis without necessarily you know, breaking privacy? And the way you do that, I think, you have to have the value transfer. So you, as you said, you feel good when you're opening Google and getting what you want in the way you want to see it. I'm feeling good that same way, very much like Amazon, where it used to be they'd say, people like you bought this, this, and this. Well, now they don't do that. They spend all their time on understanding you and making sure that the items you see on that list in the beginning are aligned with the way you like to buy. Do you like to buy brand names? Do you like to buy more expensive things? Do you like it delivered tomorrow? Do you, you know, or do you like to buy value brands? Do you do not care about delivery? Do you, you know, and what they do is they put those things first because they realize, just like Google realizes, when you have to push another button, there may be disengagement or complete shopping cover and abandonment, or in Google's case would be, I'll look for another source. Yeah. And that breaks the, the engagement. Plus, it makes you question whether or not you should even give this information away. Because there's a value proposition overall. But. Well, and I think the, the, the other interesting thing is, I mean, with some of those retailers, because they have all of your data, yeah. they have all the control. And what ends up happening is a lot of times I'll look for something. And I've been very intentional, actually, about buying things not on Amazon. And I've been surprised at how easy it is if you just choose not to do that. And as an author and as a, you know, somebody who owns a publishing company, like, it, it's a big, big deal because the more they have a monopoly, the more they can squeeze you on everything. And that's not good. That's not good right. for anybody who's selling anything through just one channel. And so I really believe that we have to be more you know, intentional and diverse about it. But you're right. They have all of the ability to be able to custom tailor exactly what you might want. And more importantly, they can create this experience where there's this manufactured trust, right? So you may not know anything about a product, but you go on Amazon and you read 10 reviews from people you don't know who may or may not be real, and right. you think, oh, all 10 people gave it five stars, it must be good, I'll buy it. 
So now you're influenced by manufactured influence, which is really, really dangerous eventually because when that goes wrong, when that goes bad, uh, you end up with a lot of the problems that we have in the world right now, where people believe things that aren't true, they, they buy things that aren't good, and they, they generally just do harm to themselves. So you speak about influence. We're getting a lot of people being categorized as influencers, and it's easy to manufacture that perception based on either buying followers or being being a specialist in nothing but a but a generalist in all, so that you find a lot of people that are liking you based on a certain thing that appealed to them, but they don't realize that that's not really who you, you're about 90 things. And how do we get around that to understand the value of what is truly influential mm-hmm. or who you should listen to? I mean, is there any way around that? Or is it getting almost impossible? I mean, do we hold the responsibility to the Twitters and the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's of the world? Or, or do we have to be more diligent in what we do? I think we do have to be more diligent. I think that there are a lot of people who are effectively gaming the system. And I think that a lot of that is because of my industry. It's because of the marketing and advertising industry and how marketing and advertising in particular has always been purchased. Because if you think about it, advertising has always been purchased based on reach, based on gross rating points, based on numbers of audience. And when you translate that into social media, because Instagram will never tell you how many actual page views somebody has, right? Google won't do the same thing. Facebook won't do the same thing. So the only thing you can look at is how many fans does someone have? Fans. And that number becomes the number. Many times it's idiotic. It's bots following. It's not real people. And so people are starting to, and particularly advertisers, are starting to get smarter about that, which is why I think the whole trend towards micro-influencers has really started taking off, which is this idea that even if somebody has 2,000 followers and that's it, but those 2,000 people act based on what that person says for example, the, the, the now classic example, I think, is the restaurant blogger who is in Chicago, who may have 500 people following them, but when they say, this restaurant's amazing, you got to go, there'll be a line of 150 people out the door from those 500, which for a restaurant, having 150 people out the door is, that's what you want. Yeah. So yes, they only had 500 people, but those people acted. And that's, I think, in many ways, true influence. But it doesn't equate to the number because if you were just buying on numbers, you'd be like, they only have 500 fans. That's nothing. Well, it's interesting because I'm active in social media and, and have found that I've actually wanted to narrow my scope of what I talk about because I want to avoid having a broad influential base that really isn't as narrow focused as what I speak on. You know, people follow me for the sake of following me or for other, you know, to be linked. Yeah. And, you, and you realize that what you get then you don't grow at the same rate, but the benefit is when I post something or when I say something, there's more people that really do engage with it. LinkedIn is much better than that because you actually see how many people go to the next step and, and look yeah, at look, it. I mean, to it's, Twitter just retreat, you know, hit it's, retreat. It's, I mean, that is a smarter strategic way to do it. But a lot of times people say to me, well, so you shouldn't just focus on like growing for growth's sake. And I'm like, actually, I can't really say that because the thing is, if you're on Instagram and you're selling advertising and sponsorship opportunities to stupid brands who are just looking at your number, you'll make money. You'll make money the more bots you buy to follow you because they don't care, right? And so, like, I can't sit there and say, well, you shouldn't do that because there are people who are paying for that right Right. now. Now, it's stupid and not strategic, and more brands are getting smarter about not doing that. But there are still people who will be like, oh, you have a million Instagram followers. Okay, here's you know, $6,000 to do a photo or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's stupid. So in the same realm, privacy, 
and the value for your, your identity. Is privacy a threat or, or some, for, to marketing? Is it going to be a threat where you know, you're going to get less and less data? Or is it an opportunity where it, it holds you accountable, but if you, but if you do it well, you're going to end up on the best side of that, that equation that's needed for privacy? What, what's your thought on, on overall? You know, I think um, what people are starting to get smarter about is that they are the product. The advertising is being sold on the back of their data because they're getting these products for free, right? These, these services for free. Right. And then they're being monetized. And I think that more people are getting smarter about the equation that doesn't really equal. The benefit they're getting is not equal to how much money is being made right. on, on their data. And so this idea that's been circulating that, that many people are starting to talk about, about us as individuals being able to monetize our own data, so if I'm generating a lot of content for Facebook and they're selling advertising against that content, I should be able to get some revenue for that. And that's an idea that I think is really starting to take off. One that solves the problem in some ways for Facebook and some of these other tech companies because it doesn't require them to have more regulation. It doesn't yeah. require them to really change the way that they're doing their business model. All it requires them to do is take X billion dollars that they have and share some of it with the people whose data they're well, using. Well, the interesting is you could end up with a situation where there's going to be some unbudsman that says, I will represent you, the consumer, in these equations to make it so you make more. So it's almost like the, the company says, find you the best deals on what you're going to buy or, and say, we'll, get, we'll make sure that if somebody goes down in price, that we'll get you the refund that was due you and all that. Because a consumer's not going to really know where to go. There's already services for that. We're in an interesting time because consumers getting smarter every day. And it's not just the people that are involved in tech all the time, but just the normal consumer now, when, they're, when something doesn't make sense from a digital perspective, they're aware of it faster than ever. And they're yeah. holding organizations accountable going, I don't, you aren't making sense here. You know, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. using my data. Exactly. You should, you know, we, we talk about the banks, the banking world. I've had 15 year relationship with one bank. I know they know everything about me, but they don't do anything to show me that they know anything about me. So that's holding them accountable oh. more and more saying, guys, I know you know better than this. I expect more from that equation. Well, and I think that we, um, in general, underappreciate how accessible the data they've collected is. Because a lot of times what, what organizations have done when they're not that sophisticated is they have these huge databases, but they can't activate. And they have a lot of old They can generate data reports internally easy because um, they can pull all this together. Yeah, and they it's, just out, can't it's deploy outdated, it. it's yeah. problematic, they have multiple addresses, they have multiple, like, you know, all of these right. legacy data issues because they're just not that smart about it. And so I think that a lot of times we compare them to a place like Disney or Amazon or really sophisticated data, well-oiled data machines yeah. that take the data and activate it, like Netflix, for example, too, right? Most companies who have, especially legacy companies, who have a lot of this data have not unlocked the potential of the data. Great. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Roos again, co-publisher of The Financial Brand and owner and CEO of The Digital Bank Report. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can learn more about The Digital Bank Report and The Financial Brand by visiting digitalbankreport.com or thefinancialbrand.com. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. Producer Bridget Coyne, in-studio engineer Eric Coltnow, 
and an additional thanks to my audio team for recording today's interview. For more information, go to evergreenpodcast.com. This is your host again, Jim Roos. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you sometime at one of my many events globally. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.